Hello and uh, welcome to uh, what will be the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, if you've been listening to my podcast for a while, uh, my podcast, 100, American Writers, 100 Pages at a Time, you'll know that I did a long series on Philip Dick's works. And it's something I, I still should get back to uh, when I finally get a hold of his posthumous work, posthumously published mainstream novels. I'll kind of come back at some point. But I've been strongly encouraged to take a close look at the works of H.P. Lovecraft from my own distinctive perspective. There are some other great podcasts out there that have looked at the works of H.P. Lovecraft fairly systematically, like the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast and, and some others. So I'm kind of throwing my point of view into that, um, that uh, cornucopia of analysis online of, of the works of Lovecraft. So I'm going to do this a bit like the Philip K. Dick book club in which the short stories, I'll do individual episodes on each short story. I'll be breaking with that 100 pages at a time format for these, these series. Um, as I did with the Philip Dick book club for some of his longer works like at the mountains of madness or the whisper in darkness or shadow out of time. I'll probably break that up into a few episodes depending on how much I have to say about them. Now, what I'm really want to get at in this series is a look at uh, Lovecraft's historical thinking, his historical context, his thoughts about race in particular, I really want to grapple that. I'm strongly of the opinion that we shouldn't uh, either uh, bracket uh, Lovecraft's racism and say it's somehow marginal to his work. I don't think that's true at all. I think it's actually central. But at the same time, I don't think we should should throw out Lovecraft because of that. But I, I think it's not something that can be sort of um, bracketed. I sometimes give the comparison to, to Wagner. I know some people do think you can't, you can't bracket Wagner's anti-Semitism from his operas. Um, and yeah, I respect those opinions, um, but I don't see it. I, I mean, I can listen to Wagner's operas and not see his anti-Semitism on the surface. I certainly see his German nationalism, for instance, and that might be, you could argue at the time, inherently anti-Semitic. I, you know, I'm not sure. But yeah, I don't see it in the work. I think the work stands on its own uh, without being tainted by his very virulent and, and unforgivable anti-Semitism. Lovecraft, on the other hand, it seems to me that race, ethnicity, uh, immigration, uh, the legacy of slavery, uh, you know, just ethnic diversity in general is really integral to maybe not all his works, but most of them. Ancestry is particularly powerful in many of his works. So I, I do want to grapple that kind of with, with both hands and, and look deeply into that. So I'm going to go through the stories and I'm going to do this by time period. So I've already kind of sketched out my plan here and I, I want to have one of one series where I'll look at his his early stories really up to 1919. This would be the ones uh, before and uh, early his juvenilia and the in like the World War One stories. Um, then I wanted to look at his his letters from um, 1911 and 1924. As you probably know, or as you may know, if you're um, a Lovecraft follower, is uh, I think it was in the 60s or so they published, uh, Arkham House published 
the selected letters of H.P. Lovecraft in five volumes. And I have three of the volumes, um, two, three, four, which I was able to, to find online. Uh, I don't have volume one and volume five, and I haven't been able to find them anywhere. Um, I tried, I actually found something that I thought was Lovecraft's selected letters on Book Depository, but it turns out when I took a closer look at the website that it was just a kind of a self-published sort of collection of Wikipedia articles called Lovecraft's Selected Letters Volume 1. It was kind of a, a scam book. So, uh, you know, that that wasn't the, the actual collection of Selected Letters I want. So they're out of print. They're very expensive. So... Um, I have looked at them before, though. I, I was able to get them uh, through an interlibrary loan last time I was in the U.S. And I took notes on them, so I might be able to say a little bit about his early letters, but, uh, you know, not much more than one or two episodes. So maybe we'll, I'll, I'll be able to say a little bit about his letters from that period. But um, then I'll look at, uh, after looking at his early writings, We'll go into his stories from 1919 to 1924, which really covers the period up to and including his his time in New York City. Um, and then we can dig into his letters more deeply uh, with Selected Letters, Volume 2, 1925 to 1929. And I'll, I won't look at every letter, but I do think we want to understand Lovecraft's historical thinking, his broader perspective on the world, his philosophy, and his racial thinking. We have to like, dig into his letters. So um, I'm not going to bore you to death, but I do think that's something I can, that I'll be doing that hasn't really been done uh, as far as I know on, uh, on any other podcast or, or series looking at the works of Lovecraft. And then I'll just sort of go back and forth between his letters and his, his stories through various epochs until I get to the end. And again, I don't have the Selected Letters Volume 5, which covers 1934 to 1937. Um, so not much I can do about that. Um, then I want to look at the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft letters, which I have. And if I get a hold of any other love, I'm just going to look at everything I can get a hold of. That's Lovecraft. Um, after looking at all that stuff, I want to jump into the revisions. Now, some of these are more his work. Some of them are, are really revisions. Some are really his original work that other people just, he ghostwrit essentially, but they're called the revisions. And I think there's some 30, 20 to 30 stories that fit into that. Um, I'll look at super, supernatural horror literature, his other nonfiction. And then finally, as best I can, I want to look at his poems. So I'm going to try to be as complete as possible. I don't quite know how I'm going to break this up. It's going to be, it's going to depend on how much I have to say about individual um, works. So that is what you're going to get in this, this podcast series. So like the H like the Philip Dick series, it may take me a couple years. Um, now, just to be, a, to confess a little bit, I have been working on a, a bit of a manuscript on H.P. Lovecraft's views of Atlantic history. Uh, it's it's going to be titled The Innsmouth Look. Um, and then I don't quite know from there. It's going to be something like The Burden of Atlantic History. And H.P. Lovecraft and The Burden of Atlantic History is probably was the title I've been playing with. Because I do think that if you take many of the controversial aspects of Lovecraft's uh, politics and racial thinking, it all kind of boils down to the fact that the United States, this country he lived in, 
was the product of Europe, uh, Native Americans, uh, Africans. It was the product, it was a country made by immigration, but it was also a country that had its roots in, you know, some of its institutional roots in Europe. Um, so it is a, a cultural, political, um, you know, mix and, and, and eventually a racial mix. And, and that is that burden of that Atlantic history, of that legacy of, of having a country built on genocide and, and slavery. That is what, you know, was at the forefront of people's consciousness in the 1920s when Lovecraft wrote many of his most famous works. Um, that era of eugenics, that era of, era of scientific racism, the era of immigration restriction, uh, that the, the era of the, the, the peak of the Ku Klux Klan and all that. So, yes, Lovecraft certainly is a product of his historical context, but I, I, I don't think it's enough to say to, to bracket that. I, I think it, or to just say, oh, because it's a product of his time, we can kind of set aside the racism thing. I think it's really crucial to his entire worldview. And I think really Lovecraft's message to the world is one about ancestry and not just the ancestry of individuals, like in stories like The Lurking Fear or The Rats in the Wall, very, very prominently the theme in those stories is ancestry. I think this ancestry theme also is for the whole nation as a whole. And so that's what I'm going to do. And um, is that all I want to do in this series? Um, I don't know. I, I've been reading a lot of, of, of Stephen King's work lately. And I, I think I want to play a little bit with Stephen King's work too, even though there's a wonderful podcast already looking at the works of Stephen King. So I'm not going to do it that style. Instead, I want to maybe throw in, as I moved to, uh, various kind of uh, essays on various aspects of of the work of Stephen King. Um, you know, I, I have various ideas for different themes I want to explore in there. So instead of looking at them work by work, because there's a great podcast that does that already, um, I want to instead kind of zero in on certain aspects of King's work. And, and I think there's some very interesting contrasts with Lovecraft in in King's work. So this is partially just me being indulgent and having a little bit of catharsis, having read all of King's work over the last couple of years and actually I've read many of those works twice over the last couple of years. And I just there's a lot I want to say, but I really don't have a format or a forum to, to say it. It doesn't really fit into my normal podcast. Um, and at the same time, there is really a wonderful uh, the Stephen King cast. Listen to it. Very influential for me, actually. Uh, you know, a wonderful podcast to check out. Um, but, you know, it's already sort of he's, he's doing so much great work over there. Um, but I, there's some things I want to say. So uh, I want to dig into it. But where I see this contrast with Lovecraft in King is while King emphasizes remembrance, the need to remember the past. Lovecraft is all about forgetting and suppressing the past. And I think that's a very, very different attitude about history. And it's maybe from a different century. I mean, I, Lovecraft at the early 20th century wants us to forget this legacy of Atlantic history or cover it up at least, right? That's why Innsmouth must be destroyed. That is why uh, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward, uh, the family must be hidden from the truth. Right. The hero of that story literally covers up a, a multi-century crime, and that's what makes him heroic. Uh, there are 
many, many more stories about the necessity of forgetting or the dangers of looking into the past, whether it's our own past, right? Rats in the wall. Someone starts to dig into his own past and they ends up going mad when doing that. King does the opposite. King always is saying we need to really dig up and expose the past and, and reveal it. And that's actually how evil can be defeated is by revealing it. So I think it's a very, very different philosophy and it's rooted in a very different philosophy of history. So I'm going to throw in some kind of essays, some thoughts I have about Stephen King as well. So that is going just like the Philip K. Dick Book Club. This is going to uh, be released along with my normal podcast. So I'm beginning a series there looking at uh, Frank uh, uh, Francis Parkman Jr. Uh, so I encourage you to continue to listen to that main podcast series where I, I think I do. Um, I'm looking at a lot of works that maybe don't get exposed much on um, in podcasts these days. So anyways, that's my series. So without, uh, let, let's just jump in and, and start with that introduction out of the way, let's let's talk about his juvenilia. So um, normally I'll do one story per per um, episode, but uh, his juvenilia. There's really only one story that's quite interesting to talk about. There are four stories he wrote as a child, essentially. Now the Alchemist, it, it's. It was published in 1917. I think I think that's the publication date, uh, 1917, and that is a more mature work. I think he wrote that maybe when he was 17 or 18 or something. So it's borderline juvenilia. These other three stories are written when he was young. So true juvenilia. Uh, the first of these is the little glass bottle. Second, the mystery of the graveyard. Third, the secret cave, and fourth, the beast in the cave. Only the beast in the cave is particularly interesting to talk about, but uh, I will say a little bit about all four um, right now. Okay, so the first uh, story we have, written by H.P. Lovecraft, is called The Little Glass Bottle. Uh, not published, written in 1897. It wasn't published until the 1950s. I don't know how I feel about these. Like Lovecraft was seven when he wrote that. These other two stories, he was eight uh, when he wrote them. You know, I don't know if 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 I become famous someday and people start digging up my old writings from when I was eight, I think I'd be quite in, you know posthumously embarrassed by them. Um, so I don't know if these are just the best of what he had or all he had intact, but but we have them, so we can can read them. Um, they're they're not horror the. Well, one of these actually does kind of qualify as a horror tale, The Secret Cave. But let's do these one at a time very briefly. And then we'll look at The Beast in the Cave, uh, which is a much more mature work and, and has a lot more for us to, to, to think about. Now, The Little Glass Bottle, uh, written in 1897. Uh, so this is the first we have. Um, something interesting in this story is it does deal with a, a sea voyage. Uh, often Lovecraft is seen as kind of a provincial New England writer, but anyone who's spent any time with, with Lovecraft knows he's actually, his stories are often globetrotting. The Call of Cthulhu, uh, the, the Shadow of Time. These are stories, in the case of Charles Dexter Ward too, these are stories that that involve journeys around the world and, and have really have, are on a global scale. 
Uh, and then, of course, you have the Dreamland stories, which which have been exploring a whole other world. Yeah, you have stories that do seem uh, provincial, like the Dunwich Horror, but even that, you have ideas and texts coming in from around the world and underground networks that seem to extend quite far. You could throw into this the horror at Red Hook, another very global story, even though it's set in, in New York. So we start here with the story about sailors in a sea voyage. And I think that's, that's striking because I think one of the things that originally really in my adulthood, I read some Lovecraft stories as a, as, a, as a kid, but when I came back to him as an adult, what I was struck by and interested in was the, the role of the sailor. In fact, my original, the original essay I wrote on Lovecraft published uh, a few years ago in an in a European and American Studies journal my original goal was to talk about the sailor, the impression of the sailor, and that kind of led to to new ideas about Lovecraft's views on race and ethnicity and eugenics and all that. Um, but I really started out just wanting to talk about the image of the sailor in Lovecraft's fiction. Now, that said, uh, beyond that, I don't think there's too much to say about the little glass bottle. It's barely a page long. Uh, the story essentially is a, a, a ship uh, gets a some people on a ship find a glass bottle and that glass bottle basically says here's where you can find a, a treasure and so they decide to go seek out the treasure uh, and when they get to the place the the x marks the spot there's a little map in the bottle along with the message they go there and they find a new message that says haha i just played a joke on you i wasn't really serious about this uh there's money here in a metal box if you take it you know, that'll pay for your expenses of coming here, but there's a second glass bottle out there somewhere if you want to find it. And and the ship's crew decide not to go after that and just pocket the $250 they find in the in the box just to break even on their 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 voyage to this place. So that's it. It's just a little practical joke story. Not too much to talk about. Certainly not a horror story, just a uh, little kid Lovecraft having a little bit of fun with um sailors but it does show him you know imagining himself in the indian ocean and you know i think that's it's just striking to me that one of his first stories does ha is set at sea and set in the pacific or the indian ocean uh what's well, the indian ocean and then australia so basically if this is a north south if this is the top of this map is north i guess that should be the pacific ocean but i guess it's uh, the, the direction is, is upside down or whatever. But anyways, that's all I really have to say about a, the little glass bottle. Again, I don't, I don't think we should be taking people's writings they had when they wrote when they were seven too seriously, dig too much into them. All right. Um, the second tale, 1898, was written. It's called The Mystery of the Graveyard or A Dead Man's Revenge, a detective story. Uh, this is a two-page story in 12 chapters. Each chapter is simply a, a paragraph. It has a lot of characters, actually. It's, uh, it's, it's not really well written. It's obviously a, a, an eight-year-old wrote it. Um, a lot of characters. None of the characters are fairly well developed. Essentially, the story is this. Uh, a man dies named Joseph Burns. He says as his last wish, he wants this a ball to be brought to a certain place in his tomb. That's some kind of ritual or something. Uh, a man named... Uh, Dobson does this, Mr. Dobson, who's the rector, he does this and he vanishes, right? Sometime later, a man named Mr. Bell arrives uh, and asks for 10,000 pounds for the return of, 
of Mr. Dobson. Um, Mr. Dobson's daughter realizes that she's being basically blackmailed by a kidnapper. And so she goes to the police uh, or she seeks out a, she actually seeks out a detective named King John. Uh, then there's a little chase. Eventually they, they, they track down, they pursue Belle, who's essentially being pursued as a kidnapper. They catch him, they put him on trial. And during the trial, Mr. Dobson shows up. And he tells his story, his story being that how he was able to escape from like a, a special room that was prepared for him, that he was led to by this thing that um, the, the dying Joseph Burns asked him to do. Basically, there's a spot, an A, marked with an A, where he brought this ball to. This somehow opened up this room, but he was able to eventually escape. Um, and then uh, Bell, the, the blackmailer, um, and... The brother of Burns, named Francis Burns, were arrested for basically trying to extort the ten thousand pounds out of out of um, the Dobson family, as well as some of the accomplices who were involved were sent to Newgate for thirty days. So this is set in England. Um, so a bit of a mystery. It has some element of the supernatural in it, which I think is striking. You you have even though there's a nat, rat, nat rational explanation for it at the end. You do have a, a mystery here, someone who seems to vanish, who just disappeared out of thin air. But it's revealed very quickly that it was a, a kidnapping scheme. So that's it. I, I do think there's something to mention here about race. Uh, this is actually the first African uh, or character of African descent we have here. I guess this is set in England, so this is a, an Afro-Briton. Uh, so chapter 7 is called The Negro Hackman. Uh, and here, I'll just read the whole paragraph for you. Uh, the Kent train started at 10.35, and at about 10.36, an excited, dusty, and tired man rushed into the Mainville hack office and said to the Negro hack man who was standing by the door, If you take me to Kent in 15 minutes, I'll give you a dollar. I don't see how to get there, said the Negro. I haven't got a decent pair of horses, and I have two dollars, shouted the traveler. All right, said the hack man. So you have a, a character here presented as... Uh, quite materialistic, uh, kind of lying about not having his horses in order to extract more wealth from from the detective. So just the character of 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 this of this um, hackman is, you know, it does show some early youthful um, racist thought, I suppose. Um, but I think more interesting for me in this is that again even, although not as this is all set in like one one area one area of england but uh mr bell's escape attempt he he when he's being chased by this detective he tries to escape and where does he want to escape to he wants to escape to to africa and he's actually preparing a ship that uh will leave for for africa um so again lovecraft does have a, a global tapestry in mind here uh, even at a young age and he has some interesting kind of that that uh, the British Empire and the places that you know the places of the world that got connected together by the by the British Empire. So uh, again, not a particularly important story, not one I really recommend dumping in, getting into. It's actually kind of hard to follow. It's not uh, the most clearly written, but you know, for an eight-year-old, not too bad. Um, 
the last or the third one here um, of these really juvenile pieces was written in 1898 as well. It's called The Secret Cave or John Lee's Adventure. And this one actually is, is kind of good. It's kind of it's a it's a true horror story, actually. Um, so you just have two kids, uh, John Lee and Alice Lee, who are playing together. Uh, the parents leave them alone and they go digging around the cellar and they, you know, dig through various uh, rubbish. Eventually they find a secret passage and they go into the secret passage and it leads into a cave. Uh, unfortunately, the cave starts to uh, fill with water. Wait, first they find a box and, and they decide to take the box and they get on this this boat that's there. But then the, the, the cave starts to fill with water. Eventually, though, um, Alice drowns. Um, and But John's able to get away because he's a stronger swimmer. He's a little bit older, too. Uh, Alice was two years old. John was 10. And this passage, it's actually kind of creepy. Um, here's what Lovecraft wrote. Uh, he could shut off the water, and he speedily did this. And lifting the now lifeless body of his sister onto the boat, he himself climbed in and sailed down the passage. It was gruesome and uncanny, absolutely dark, his candle being put out by the flood and a dead body lying near. He did not gaze about him, but rode for his life. When he did look up, he was floating in his own cellar and quickly rushed up the stairs with the body to find his parents had come home and he told them the story. That's how, that's essentially how the story ends. And that's a very, very creepy and, and fright, frightening image, it seems. To me, uh, a young boy, uh, in the dark, uh, in a cave, uh, with the dead body of his sister. Now, the box he finds has gold in it worth about $10,000. And Lovecraft's final thoughts in the story is, that's enough to pay for anything but the death of his sister. So, um, yeah, those are three. Those are three stories all written when he was, uh, you know, seven, and, seven to eight years old. So the final piece of juvenilia I want to talk about briefly does have a lot more interesting things to in it um, for looking at later Lovecraft's career. It's a much more mature work, and that is The Beast in the Cave. This was written in 1905. It was published in 1918 in The Vagrant. Uh, so it was written when Lovecraft was 14 years old. Um, and I think it must have been revised before it was published in 1918. So, um, you know, I, 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 don't think I, I don't think we have the original draft here maybe maybe it exists somewhere but i think this uh probably had been revised somewhat uh in the 10 years between it's being written and, and published um so this is actually a really really uh interesting uh and good story i, I think it, it stands up uh with some of lovecraft's later works actually um so we we were our our the narrator in this story is in this place called the Mammoth Cave, and he's part of a tour that's exploring the cave, and he gets lost. Now, why is he touring this cave? Well, he's an intellectually very, very curious person, and this is, of course, a running Lovecraftian trope, is someone whose curiosity leads them to some kind of catastrophe, um, whether it's some kind of self-knowledge or, or knowledge about the universe and, and kind of the, the, the reality of or the, the cosmic reality we live in, reali uh, realization about it. Uh, leads one to madness, leads one to uh, some kind of horrific truth. Uh, now, this place has a history. This mammoth cave has a history, and that's, it seems, what's part driving this, this tourism. Uh, quoting, 
Uh, I remember the accounts which I had heard of the colony of consumptives who taking their residence in this gigantic grotto to find health from the apparent salubrious air from the underground world and its steady uniform temperature, pure air and peaceful quiet had found instead death in strange and ghastly form. I had seen the sad remains of their ill-made cottages as I passed by them with the party, and I wondered what unnatural influence a long surgeon in this immense and silent cavern were exerted upon one as healthy and vigorous as I. So, um, I'm not sure that's why everyone's going here, because he kind of is the one, he, he mentions he's the one who remembers this history. But they're walking past these cottages that these people who go there as kind of a health resort. So this cave was being used as some sort of health resort, but these people died. I guess that ended the use of it. Um, but he's coming at this just as an intellectual curiosity because once he got lost, once he was lost in the cave, and that's how the story begins. The story begins with helplessness, helplessness, despair, being alone in this dark cave. But then this is contrasted with his intellectual curiosity, both about the cave itself and about his own fate. He thinks about, is he going to starve to death? What will that be like? Will he go mad? And then he, that's why he compares himself to the consumptives, because he says, I'm healthy, so maybe I'll have a very different experience facing death in this dark cave. And it's really kind of fascinating, this acceptance he has for his death. He doesn't panic. He just says, oh, if I'm going to die, I might as well fulfill my intellectual curiosity as I, as I face that death. So our narrator does make a, an attempt to escape. He doesn't think it's going to work. He, he kind of admits it, it, it was a futile attempt, but he starts trying to call out for the guide. Maybe the, the, the guide who brought them there would, would find him and he could be, be saved. But not long after doing that, he starts to hear these sounds. And Lovecraft goes into some detail about uh, the growing knowledge of these sounds of footfalls coming towards him and the internal uh, you know, stream of consciousness about what those might be. The first realization that maybe it's a person, but then they sound like it's four feet, and then they sound padded. So he starts to think maybe it's a, like a mountain lion. It does seem to be kind of feline in sound. So, uh, but the biggest kind of realization he has that it's a beast comes when he you know, acknowledges that maybe those are four feet, not two. Um, so with this fear, he shuts, he shuts up, he stops calling for the guide and he begins to prepare some kind of defense. So he starts digging around for rocks or anything he can use to perhaps um, save his life if this beast does indeed attack him. So a little bit later, he changes his mind and he says, maybe it's back to two feet. So we have some kind of beast that sometimes seems to walk on two, sometimes seems to walk on four. Now, there's a wonderful passage uh, at this part of the story where he goes back to the consumptives and he starts to think that maybe this beast was trapped in the cave like he was. And he has a little moment of empathy with the monster uh, or whatever it is. Where he thinks, you know, how did this survive? Did it live off? like cave fish or other bats and rats and things that might be living in the cave. Um, so here's what he writes. It must, I thought, be some unfortunate beast who had paid for its curiosity to investigate one of the entrances of the fearful grotto with a con lifelong confinement in its irremitable recesses. It doubtless obtained as food, it, it, as food the eyeless fish, bats, and rats of the cave, as well as some of the ordinary fish that are wafted in at every fish freshet of green river which communicates in some occult manner with the waters of the cave 
I occupied my terrible vigil with grotesque conjectures of what alterations cave life might have wrought in the physical structure of the beast. Remember the awful appearance ascribed by local tradition to the consumptives who had died after long residence in the cave. Then I remembered with a start that even should I succeed in killing my antagonist, I should never behold its form as my torch had long since been extinct. And I was entirely unprovided with matches. Um, so that passage, there's a lot actually to look at here in this passage. The biggest and most important is that you have a local tradition about the fate of these consumptives. And this is something he was already aware of and already really curious about. And one of the reasons he seemed to want to investigate this grotto, this cave. Um, and this idea that there's some sort of physical descent, long, prolonged isolation, prolonged uh, kind of being locked away in the darkness leads to this kind of physical transformation, this kind of uh, degeneration or reversion. Again, that's something Lovecraft comes back to so much in his work, this uh, isolation, whether it's a family, a family line being isolated geographically, you get some kind of degeneration. Uh, you see it in Dunwich, you have it in, in Innsmouth, although that's really a complicated story. We'll, we'll talk about that later. But, uh, you know, any kind of backward people, people locked away from civilization, experience this reversion to some sort of earlier state. And this is really, really a big part of his thinking about race and thinking about um, racial degeneration in general. And it's something that the eugenicists of the time thought about when they talked about like the tri-racial isolates, the people living in Appalachia or backcountry Virginia, when they looked at these people who, you know, sometimes trace their descent by mythology to black, Indian and white um, racial uh, families. Uh, that's why they're called tri-racial, but they were isolates. So the term was tri-racial isolates. That was the, the term given by eugenicists for these, these groups. And key, key to their racial degeneration was their physical and cultural and social isolation. And you have Lovecraft uh, being quite attuned to these ideas in this passage. And again, I don't know if this is in the later revision or was in the original story he wrote. If it is, it shows a lot of maturity for a 14-year-old to be thinking in these terms about, about degeneration in ways that, although they'll be more matured in later works, that heart is already here in this, in this story. So um, he starts to hear the, the footfalls come closer to him, so he throws one of the rocks he picked up at it, and it misses, but it does seem to stop him, stop the creature, and he starts to hear the breathing of this beast and he hears that it's labored breathing. So he thinks maybe it's been running or coming a long way to get to him. Um, so he throws a second attack and this one hits the beast and seems to actually injure it quite severely, but not end it. And at this moment, our narrator loses all interest in curiosity. Up to this point, he had this deep curiosity about the cave, about it's these consumptives who died in the cave and seemed to have been lost or had experienced some kind of fate or uh, about the beast itself. He loses that curiosity and he just uh, starts to flee and he starts fleeing back the way he comes, hoping, you know, for some kind of salvation to come just from from flight. You know, this comes when he when he used his second weapon, his second missile, as he calls them, his second rock, and he realizes this didn't kill the beast. He has no choice but then to to run. All right, so he runs and he, find, he runs into the guide who has torches and weapons. And so 
this in, he tells them the story he tells them what happened and they decide to go back and investigate this beast um who was apparently injured by our hero's uh projectile you know weapon the rock he threw comes back to the beast and then they now they have lights so they get a good look at it and we get this really wonderful uh description um i you know you know lovecraft's early work when people kind of talk about his monsters you know his early work is often said it's often said like his early work it was more like the unknowable he didn't just spend time describing the creature it's just kind of unknowable and then later you know you get these very scientific and unique descriptions like in the dunwich horror and in uh, at the mountains of madness really much more scientific descriptions of these creatures very detailed descriptions well this is more like that later uh type of monster where we get a very very detailed description um you know a big chunk of the story is simply the description of this creature and it's worth reading. I'm not going to read the whole thing, though. Um, quote, it appeared to be an anthropoid ape of large proportions, escaped perhaps from some itinerant menagerie. Its hair was snow white, a thing due no doubt to bleaching action of long existence within the inky confines of the cave. But it was also surprisingly thin, being indeed largely absent save on the head, where it was of such length and abundance that it fell over the shoulders in considerable profusion. The face was turned away from us as the creature lay almost directly upon it. The inclination of the limbs was very singular, explaining, however, the alteration in their use, uh, which had been before noted, whereby the beast used sometimes all four, and on other occasions, but two for its progress. From the tips of the fingers or toes, long nail-like claws extended. The hands or feet were not prehensile. The fact that I ascribed to the long residence in the cave, which, as I before mentioned, seemed evident from the all-pervading and almost unearthly whiteness so characteristic of the whole anatomy. So the, the guard prepares to, to kill it, but it eventually dies, and they get a, a closer look at the face. And the face eventually is a, is a human face. So that's the climax of the story. And at this moment, at the moment that they get a full look at this and the realization that this is some kind of degenerate man, maybe one of those consumptives who got lost in the cave and ended up living there, surviving and living off those bats and rats and fish and things. Um, but it was a man. But uh, the curiosity returns to our hero. And that, I think, is striking. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, uh, you know, this is a story of like how fear replaces curiosity, gets replaced by fear. And then once from a position of safety, our hero once again returns to curiosity. Quote, then fear left and wonder, awe, and compassion, and reverence succeeded in his place, for the sounds uttered by the stricken figure that lay stretched out on the limestone had told uh, us the awesome truth. The creature I had killed, the strange beast of the unfathomed cave, was or had at one time been a man. Um, and we actually get a description of the sounds it makes. It's called, it, it's described as, or Lovecraft describes it as deep-toned chattering, kind of like a human speech that has been forgotten or degenerated as well. Um, so, it's just it was just a person who got lost in the cave like our hero so that's uh you know the early questioning of our narrator what's going to happen to me if i stay in this cave well we get the answer here we're going to become this kind of uh degenerated person now i debate i i, I debate whether this is kind of lamarckism or not i i don't believe lovecraft accepted lamarckism um 
But there's a bit of it here, and maybe he played with the idea. Now, Lamarck's idea was he was kind of a, a another once people realized evolution took place. Once there was like the fossil record of evolution, the question is, then how do these species change? And, you know, the Darwinian explanation sort of won out by the 20th century, but it wasn't the only one. It wasn't, you know, Darwin's theory of modification through descent through many generations was one explanation. But another that was popular at the time and, and remained influential in the 20th century with ideas of like Leschenko in the Soviet Union is Lamarckism. And basically that is use or non-use of, of features uh, during lifetime can lead to a change that can be passed on to one's offspring. So for instance, if someone works out a lot, they'll be stronger and that feat of strength could then be passed on, right? It's not a genetic thing as we now understand genetics. It was just something that could be acquired. So the explanation of the giraffe stretching the neck out uh, to reach higher um, leaves will eventually lead to, you know, animals with longer and longer necks, uh, not uh, generations of, of natural selection. But I'm not sure because the description is just of, seems to be a man who's been living in a cave for a long time. Uh, the whiteness just comes from not being around sun. I don't know about the white hair. You know, maybe it's just an old man. Uh, there doesn't seem to, I'm not sure there is the, the physical change or there's some ambiguity about how much this creature has physically changed or more just degenerated by being through isolation. And the final line, it was or had at one time been a man. So it's, it's a little bit ambiguous whether uh, genetically or some kind of, I guess he wouldn't have understood genetics at this point, but some kind of physical you know, is it still a human or has it already kind of progressed into some kind of ghoul, um, one of Lovecraft's ghouls, maybe? Um, so that's the story. Um, I think there's a lot here that we're going to see in later Lovecraft stories, such as uh, the darkness. I mean, wow. Like, the, like if you think about the, the case of Charles Dexter Ward, that moment where the hero of that story is in those dark caves with a light. Um, some of the more terrifying moments. You see the same thing in the at the Mountains of Madness. You have it, uh, where else do we see it? You have it in the lurking fear, right? You're, you experience something only by feel or sound and, and total darkness, you know, enhances that terror. I mean, Lovecraft was really good at those moments. I think he reaches the peak, the pinnacle of that in the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, so you have that, you have a dialogue about curiosity, which is very, very key to, I think, his entire work. You know, the danger of curiosity, how curiosity leads us into recklessness and leads us to some kind of truth or, or realization that, that we better should not have looked into. Now, in this story, curiosity comes back at the end, and I think that's uh, striking. Now, our character ends up okay, maybe a little bit traumatized by his experience, but, you know, he's not dying as a result of this. It's not some monster that's going to come back and get him. It dies in the story. Um, so you got that. And I think this theme of, of degeneration through isolation is, is there as well. So um, that's, this is a really good story. I think if you read this story, you know, you, you probably, without knowing it, you might not, not, not realize it's juvenilia. 
It's it's certainly the the other three tales I talked about are kind of just forgettable, you know, little sketches that he wrote as a as a kid. They're obviously that, but this written by a 14-year-old is quite mature and shows many of the themes that Lovecraft will explore later, including themes of of racial degeneration. Um, so that's it. That's uh, my my thought on Lovecraft's Juvenalia, uh, those four stories. So let me know what you think. If you have any of your own thoughts about these stories, let me know. Um, I'm brief on these because I don't think they're as important to spend a lot of time on as some of his later writings. Um, next time I'll look at The Alchemist, written in, in 1908. So written when I guess he was 17 or 18 when he wrote that. So that's a much more mature work. Um, that one was published in November 1916. So that'll be next. One whole episode just on The Alchemist. Um, so if you have any recommendations for me for this series, again, I'm going to be looking at everything by Lovecraft that I can get my hands on. Uh, his nonfiction, his poetry, his, as many letters as I can get a hold of, all of his stories, his revisions. And so it's, it's going to be a big project. It's going to take me quite a while to, to do this. But um, I'm looking forward to sharing my thoughts about Lovecraft with uh, my listeners. Um, so um, that's it for now. So thanks, as always, for listening. And I'll see you next time when I share my thoughts on The Alchemist.